Let's pray together. Lord, we do long for that day when we are face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ, when we are freed from sinning, when we are freed from these bodies that are prone to wander. Lord, would you, as was prayed earlier, give us a sense of wonder and amazement at the work of Christ. May he be pleased and glorified in the way that we proclaim the truth about your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're in Luke chapter 5, as Jeff read earlier. I found myself over the last several years returning again and again to a quote by Carl F.H. Henry. He reminds us, the early church did not say, look what the world is coming to. They said, look what has come into the world. And this morning, I was reminded, even as we gather and as we sing and as we pray and as we read the Bible and as we preach the Bible, it's because Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. So this morning, we seek to redirect our thoughts away from the busyness that this next week might hold away from the headlines that tend to dominate the news, and if we're honest, can dominate our own hearts. We seek to turn our eyes away from ourselves and our dreams and our agenda and onto the one who has come into the world. So Lord willing, Luke has been sort of a a, a remedy against being so distracted by ourselves and by the here and now. And week in and week out, through Luke, our eyes cannot help but turn, return to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been in this section of Luke where he, uh, Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's been traveling, he's been teaching in various cities, he's been healing, he's been casting out demons. And in each of these sections, we're seeing the authority of Jesus put on display Authority, as we've said repeatedly in his teaching, authority over angels, even wicked angels, authority over creation, authority over sickness and disease, authority over people like Simon and James and John, authority over people like you and I. And now Luke sets out to to, to make this connection in our minds. Not only is Jesus a capable Savior, but he is a willing Savior. Savior. We see this willingness in a couple ways. One, Jesus is willing and able to make the unclean clean. That's in our first section, verses 12 through 16. And then the second section is uh, 17 through 26. Jesus is willing and able to forgive sin. And I think these stories work in conjunction together. That's why we're taking two different paragraphs today. I think what the first one hints at, the second one outright declares and pronounces. So let's look at the first point this morning. Jesus is is able and willing to make the unclean clean. Look back in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, 
And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to, a desolate, to desolate places and pray. Jesus is still ministering in the region of Galilee. Luke is not particularly concerned about what city Jesus is in at this point. He says he's in one of the cities. He's more interested in, in the point that is about to develop, the point that the events teach us. And so a man full of leprosy approaches Jesus. And if we're going to understand this passage, we need to con consider what it meant for someone in ancient Israel to have leprosy. First, I, I, if you read the, the Old Testament law, you know that leprosy is a broader term than what we know as leprosy today. Leprosy in the Old Testament describes any number of different skin conditions that could arise. The worst kind, the kind that we know as leprosy today, the, or maybe you're uh, aware of Hansen's disease, it would not only cause lesions on the skin, but it would attack the nervous system. And it can cause disfigurement of the face, and, and it could cause loss of feeling in extremities, and, and lepers could wear away their own tissue without realizing it because they didn't have feeling in their uh, certain parts of their body. The description of this man as full of leprosy would make us lean to the fact that he's probably got the severe case. He's probably got what we have uh, known today as Hansen's disease. But the physical hardship of leprosy was really only a piece of the puzzle. It was really only part of the reason leprosy was so bad. If you were a leper, you were ostracized from society. They were unclean and had to live apart from everyone else. When Israel was in the wilderness after being freed from Egypt, they had to go outside the camp. And this is necessary. It's not, it's not a cruel act. It's a necessary act. Because if they remain in the camp, then leprosy spreads throughout the whole camp. In fact, this is part of God's provision in the law. In Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46, it commands this, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair, the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. We've seen, even in our own lives in this short time of, of COVID, where we've probably been more isolated in the last year than normal. Some in nursing homes have been really locked up. And so these words, he shall live alone, I think on the back end of COVID, we can, we can relate to those words a little more clearly. It haunts us a little more what it is to be isolated, to be alone. And that's the, that's the lot of the leper. He shall live alone. Lastly, those with, not lastly in terms of the sermon, <laughs> lastly about leprosy, 
those with leprosy were viewed as if they're resting under God's judgment. Though contracting the skin disease was not always the direct result of someone's personal sin, it became viewed as you have leprosy, you must be under God's judgment. Because of stories like Gehazi that we've walked through in Bible Hour, and King Uzziah, who grew proud at the end of his days, they were cursed with leprosy. There came to be this sort of one-to-one correlation that if you have leprosy, you must be under God's judgment. And there's a sense in which this leprosy was to teach the laws of uncleanness given to us in the Old Testament. Leprosy would make you unclean before God. Now the purpose of these laws were were any number of things. It would be impossible to go a, a month without becoming unclean. The purpose of these laws was to teach Israel that God is perfect and that he is holy and that he is set apart from creation. And so even though some of these things that make you unclean are not sin and of themselves, they teach us that it is impossible for us to remain unstained before God. And so they needed to be cleansed and there was different rituals in which they would be cleansed and different sacrifices through which you might be cleansed. And so for these reasons, the life of the leper was a terrible life. It was a world of hurt. He or she was socially isolated, religiously isolated, abandoned by society. Someone described it as a form of living death. And so this man, physically suffering, socially isolated, unclean before God, he comes before Jesus, and when he sees Jesus, he falls on his face. He becomes the second person in the last four or five verses to fall before Jesus. He falls down before him, just like Simon did a few verses previous. The leprous man's request gives us, I think, then the the hint about what direction Luke is taking this passage. Look at the end of verse 12. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Much like Simon did, he uses the term Lord. We don't know exactly what the leper knew and understood about Jesus. He knows this, though. Jesus is God's agent of deliverance, and he can make me clean. He has that sort of faith, and it really is a unique and an amazing faith. But it's also a humble response. There's this humble confidence in the leper as he approaches Jesus. He falls down, but he knows, you're the one. You're the one that can make me clean. The one that recognizes his uncleanness also recognizes that Jesus is the one that can help. He knows that Jesus is able. You can make me clean, Jesus. The question, the only real question in the mind of the leper is, will he? Will he want to do it? Will he desire to do it? Will he actually use the the, the power that he has to make me clean? You know, we've we've said this a few times as we've walked through Luke, that it's, it's easy for us to lose sort of the astonishment of the moment as we become more and more familiar with these stories. So I think it helps us to kind of try to imagine in our mind what is happening. It helps us to imagine, even if we were there in the crowd, 
Like if we hopped in a time machine and set the timer for right in between verses 12 and 13. A leper has approached Jesus. He's fallen on his face. He said, if you will, you can make me clean. And we're there wondering, man, what is Jesus going to do? What is Jesus going to do with this leper? What is he going to do with the outcast? What is he going to do with the unclean sinner that's asked Jesus to make him clean? And as we watch on, we see that the, the leper's not sent away. He's not reprimanded for nearly getting the preacher sick. Instead, Jesus, what does he do? He reaches out and he touches the leper. He reaches out, he touches the leprous man and removes any doubt about his willingness to heal this man. I will, Jesus says, be clean. And immediately, immediately the leprosy left him. The effects of the disease are completely reversed when Jesus reaches out, he touches them, and he pronounces him clean. Again, much like the other healings in, in the book of Luke, the disease doesn't just stop. He doesn't say, well, you know, you won't get any worse. Immediately, the leprosy fled away at the touch and the command of Jesus. Jesus then makes the unclean clean. He takes the defiled and makes them undefiled. You know, the, the reaching out of his hand reminds us of the, the power of Jesus. It reminds us of all the passages in the Old Testament where, Jesus, where God works through his right arm. He works through the strength of his arm and his hand. So Jesus' power is on display. But also there's something else going on, on in this text. Not only if you had leprosy were you unclean, but if you touched a leper, you became unclean. You had to go outside the camp until the priest could declare you clean. So as the crowd watches on, they're inevitably thinking in their mind, you can't do that, Jesus. You can't touch the unclean leper. You will become unclean. You will have to be isolated. You will be ostracized. You will be under God's judgment. You can't reach out and touch the leper. But as we know from the text, when, when Jesus reaches out, he touches the leper. Jesus doesn't become unclean. He doesn't become polluted. He doesn't become defiled. The leper becomes clean. The unclean is cleansed. He's made whole. The uncleanness that was meant to be a picture, an image of the pervasiveness of sin and our inability to remain unstained by the world and by our own sinful hearts and therefore unable to be in God's presence. He's taken that away in a moment, immediately. You see, though, though Le uh, Leviticus gave instructions for what happens to a person if the leprosy goes away, you know, if the leprosy disappears, then you can come back into the camp. Though it gave instruction on what to do if that happened, the, the priest in and of himself was given no ability to, to touch or to heal. It was outside of anyone's control what happened to the leprosy outside of God. And so Jesus has come and he can do what the priest cannot do. He can do what no one else can do. He can reach out and touch the unclean and they become clean. 
So if we're right to understand these, these laws of uncleanness as a picture of our sin, then we, we would say this, Jesus is able to make the unclean clean in us as well. Not just leprosy, but what leprosy pictured, what it imaged. Jesus would teach elsewhere in the Gospels that it's not actually what goes into a person that defiles a person. It's not what we eat that makes us unclean. It's what proceeds out of the heart that makes someone defiled, that makes someone unclean. Well, what comes out of the heart? Murder, theft, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's the things that proceed from our heart that truly make us unclean. And so if we have come to Christ through faith, through, through reliance, a friendly reliance on his finished work on the cross, then we, th- we should think about our past sin in that way, that has been made clean, that it fled when Christ saved us. I wonder if that's how you think about your salvation, that Jesus has made you completely clean. That deep, dark stain in your heart, the thing that still passes through your mind to this day, and when it does, you feel the gut punch of guilt in your soul. It's cleansed in Christ. Richard Sibbs said it this way, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And there's a lot of sin in us. That's my tag line, but there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Jesus makes the unclean clean, and Jesus is willing to act. The glory of this passage, as we've said, I believe Luke is trying to emphasize and highlight that Jesus is not only capable, he not only has the authority, he not only has the ability, but it highlights Jesus' willingness to reach out and touch the unclean and to make them clean. The incarnation in itself should be enough evidence to us to make that clear that Jesus is willing to come to save sinners. You see, it's over and over and over again in the Gospels that those around Jesus assume that he's too important, he's too busy, he's not interested to act. It's those around Jesus that think that. Whether it's the blind beggar, that hears that Jesus is coming and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And they say, would you be quiet? Jesus doesn't have time for you. And you know what Jesus does? He, he commands the man to be brought to him. Or whether it's these helpless mothers that just want to get their little babies to Jesus so they might touch them and presumably heal them. And the disciples this time, they're the ones that say, would you get out of here? Jesus has more important stuff to handle. And Jesus says, no, 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 let the little children come unto me. Jesus, the Son of God, who willingly left heaven's glory to come to this earth, and he willingly endures the weakness of humanity, willingly obeys the Father by living a perfectly sinless life willingly gives up his own body to shed his blood on that cross for our sins. And he willingly says to those, he, or he willingly saves those. He willingly justifies those who say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Oh, how, I, how Jesus delights in answering that request. You can make me clean. I will. 
be clean. So after healing this man, Jesus gives him a couple instructions. First, as is often the case, Jesus charges the man, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody. We've argued that Jesus is carefully constructing his own timeline for when he chooses to go to the cross and suffer and die there for our sins. He doesn't want his uh, fame to spread too quickly. He doesn't want his fame to spread for all the wrong reasons. Jesus has come to do more than just to heal. And we'll see that in the next paragraph. Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He knows the propensity of man to just want the physical benefits of following Jesus, so he charges him to remain silent. Now the Gospel of Mark tells us the guy didn't listen to that. He went and told everybody. But second, uh, Jesus charges the man to go before the priest and to make his offering. This was the law. This was the Old Testament law that a person who got leprosy was to go outside the camp, and if the leprosy went away, he could present himself to the priest. And the priest would judge whether he was now clean and able to come back inside the camp. And after this, he would offer a sacrifice, and he would be made ceremonially clean. And so Jesus says, you need to go. You need to go and you need to present yourself to the priest. Go all the way to Jerusalem to, to present yourself there. I think one of the, the glories of this passage is Jesus affirms the law here in his ministry, but he has come to do what the law could not do. He has come to accomplish what the law could not accomplish. The law pointed out the man's uncleanness. The law demonstrated the man's uncleanness. But Jesus has come to permanently make the unclean sinner clean. Interestingly, as well, in verse 14, he says, Go to the priest as proof to them. The idea is that Jesus has come to do what the law could not do. He's come to do what the priest could not do. And he wants to demonstrate that to the priest. That they can see that this man has been made clean. They can't make someone clean, but Jesus can. So he sends them to the priest in affirmation of the law and as proof to them, to the religious leaders, that the Messiah, the, Messiah, the Savior, has come into the world. This section ends with Jesus walking away. You know, if it were, if it were me, I'd want to fan the flame of my own popularity. I want to seize the moment. The crowds are here. Jesus doesn't do that. He withdraws to a desolate place to pray. He escapes to commune with the Father. And Jesus is often found praying before conflict or before hardship. And this is no exception. In our next passage, we see that Jesus encounters opposition for the first time in Luke, opposition from the formal religious crowd. Up until this point, it's been kind of the crowd at the synagogue that sort of opposes Jesus, those in Nazareth who oppose Jesus. Here it is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Look at verse 17. It's our second point. Jesus is able and willing to forgive sin. 
On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Jesus is continuing his preaching ministry in and around Galilee. His fame has spread to such an extent that some of the Pharisees and scribes have come from as far away as Jerusalem and Judea to look into these things that they have heard about Jesus. Specifically, there are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Again, this is Jesus' first encounter with the religious leaders. It'll be first of four that we'll see in, in the next uh, several passages. The Pharisees were one of three major Jewish groups that are mentioned in Scripture. Historically, there may have been others, but in Scripture, there are three that are specifically mentioned. You have the Sadducees. You, you may have heard of them. They were more of a political arm than a, than a religious arm. They denied the resurrection. They denied the existence of angels and, and the spiritual aspect of their uh, religious beliefs. They were more of a political force. They sought to appease Rome. They wanted to kind of work alongside Rome and make life as good as they could for the Jewish people. There were, uh, one of the groups not mentioned is, is the Essenes. Uh, 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 they're not mentioned here. They were more spiritual than the Sadducees, less political. And we've got uh, the Pharisees as well. The Pharisees were not priests. Oh, I should mention the scribes. I'm looking at my notes like I said three in Scripture. Yeah, the scribes, the teachers of the law. The Pharisees, though, were not priests. They were leaders who, who sought specific ways to apply the law when they thought the law was not specific enough. 600 plus Old Testament commandments were not enough for them. They wanted to add more to the law and they sought to bind people under their additions to the law. They, these were likely then dispatched from Jerusalem and other parts of Israel to assess this man, Jesus. Is he a teacher? Is he a prophet? Could he be the Messiah? They're going to find out, but they won't like their answer. Verse 17 ends with, with an interesting comment that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Again, Luke is seeking, I believe here, to remind us once again that Jesus has been anointed with the Spirit. It recalls the baptism of Jesus where the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, affirming that he is the servant of Isaiah 61. And this also anticipates, I think, the showdown that's about to happen between the anointed Son, the one who has the power to heal, and the group, the Pharisees, that will become one of his primary opponents. So the house in which Jesus is teaching and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are there. I, would, I think that's synonymous with scribes. They're packed in this house. It's standing room only. It's shoulder to shoulder. Jesus' fame is spread to the point where the house is absolutely packed. And it presents a little bit of a problem for four friends. 
who want to get their paralyzed body to Jesus. Look in verse 18 then. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. This man is lying on something like a stretcher, probably less like a bed, and something like a stretcher where you can get on four corners and carry this man wherever he needs to go. Now, much like the life of the leper, this life is an awful life. I mean, it's bad enough to be paralyzed in the United States, but in ancient Israel, there is no disability insurance. This man would be completely and utterly dependent on those around him if he's going to survive another day. If he's going to survive one more day, he needs somebody to make that happen. And so as his friends haul him around, they're looking for a way in. They've, they've likely heard that Jesus can heal. We've got to get him to Jesus. The crowd is packed. And one of them says, you know what? I've got an idea. And here's the idea in verse 19. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus. I've got an idea. Let's take him up to the roof. And I imagine the paralyzed man saying, guys, I think we should come back tomorrow. But they're persistent. They keep pushing until they can get their guy before Jesus. Again, this is a demonstration of their, their faith and their persistence and their trust that Jesus can act and Jesus will act. They may have even heard that, that Jesus is willing to reach out and touch the leper. Not only can he act, but he will act. They're certain, they are certain that if they can get him before Jesus, that he is able and willing to heal this man of his paralysis. So they climb up on the roof. You know, the roof of a typical house is not like our roofs, you know, where it's steeply pitched. It'd be relatively flat where you could actually go up there and, and rest on a cool evening. So these guys get up on this flat roof and they start tearing into the roof. And, and, and then they have to design something to safely lower the man through the roof. And again, it's, it, it's our job as readers to, to, to picture this happening. Jesus is teaching inside the house, and you hear some footsteps. It's like when the kids get out of Bible hour early. You hear a stampede on the roof, and then all of a sudden, so you see a little bit of dirt start to fall, and then there's a, a gaping hole in the roof. When I came out to candidate, the fire alarm went off, and I thought that was bad. I can't imagine the roof falling apart. And then somebody descending on a stretcher in front of Jesus. And again, we're left to ask, how will Jesus respond? And you'd think the first thing that Jesus would do, based, up, based upon what we've read to this point, you would think the first thing Jesus would do is heal the man physically. But he doesn't. Look in verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, that's... That's more like friend. It's kind of, a, kind of a greeting. It's hard to read that without saying, man, you're forgiven. It, it's like friend, you are forgiven. When he saw their faith, the text says, th these men had demonstrated incredible faith that Jesus would heal this man. 
You don't tear the roof apart for a 50-50. Jesus, though, acts in, I think, somewhat of a surprising manner in meeting the man's greatest need first. He doesn't heal him initially. He says, your sins are forgiven. The hope of of Luke chapter 1, that John the Baptist would go before, prepare the way of the Lord, that John the Baptist would pronounce the one who is coming is bringing with him the forgiveness of sins. The hope of Luke 1 is realized in this man. The man, in an instant, with this gracious pronouncement of Jesus, moves from condemned to forgiven. Like the leper, he moves from one state to another. He used to live in this realm of condemnation, dead in his trespasses and sins, and he moves to this realm of forgiveness. The leper went from clean, or unclean to clean. This man moves from condemnation to forgiveness. And remember then that, that Jesus sent the leper to the priest so that they could see that he can make the unclean clean. Here he uses this moment to interact with another religious group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And his pronouncement to forgive sin is not lost on these religious leaders. They ask in verse 21, who is this that speaks, who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? To, to blaspheme was to bring shame upon the name of God. And, and if Jesus is not God, then he would be blaspheming because he's claiming to do what only God is capable to do. The Jewish leaders were, were so afraid to blaspheme that they wouldn't even verbalize the name of Yahweh. And so imagine their reaction when Jesus says, I can do what only God can do. I have the authority to forgive sin. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're right. Only God can forgive sin because our sin is ultimately against him. I heard one pastor, I think helpfully, defining the root of sin and how it is ultimately against God himself. He says this, The root of sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promise of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. Our sin is first and foremost and ultimately against God himself. And as we look at that list, we think, man, who can stand Who can stand? Who can consider our own lives and say, oh, good. If that's what sin is, I'm good. None of us. None of us. So it is the Lord who must forgive our rebellion against him. The one who is the offended party must be the one to forgive. If you attack someone else, I can't say, oh, well, he forgives you. I can't can't step into that moment. The the offended party must be the one who forgives. So it is the Lord who must forgive rebellion and sin against him. 
and he's willing and able, and he, he does. David exclaims in Psalm 103 in this great proclamation of what forgiveness is. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He does not treat us according to the way that our sin demands. And again, in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You see, this, this pronouncement that Jesus gives, it's, it's, it's passive for this guy. It's not something that he, he, he does or he accomplishes. It's Jesus forgiving because he is the Lord who has been offended by sin. The thoughts then of the religious leaders that they're, they're thinking, they're questioning in their heart, who is this guy? They haven't verbalized it yet. They thought this was a secret kind of welling up in their heart and Jesus perceives their thoughts. And I don't think this is Jesus just reading the room really well. I think this is Jesus as God. He knows their very thoughts and intentions. He knew what they were thinking. Look at his response in verses 22 through 26. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So Jesus sets forth a, a sort of challenge. Is my statement true or not that I've said this man's sins are forgiven? Is there power behind my pronouncement or are these empty words that I have spoken? So he asks them, which requires less work? To say your sins are forgiven or to heal a man who has been paralyzed? Really what, he, what he's getting at is it's easier for Jesus to say something that cannot be visually seen. It's not that that work is easier than the other. It's, it's let me just read what Daryl Bach said. It's easier to say something that cannot be visually verified than to say something that can be physically substantiated. So it's, it's easier then for Jesus, if, if he's a fraud, to say something that cannot be verified. It's like me saying, oh, I've been healed of my headaches. Well, you can't verify that. So Jesus' miracle would attest then to the validity of Jesus' first pronouncement that this man's sins are forgiven. We've seen this, and we mentioned in the introduction, this, this theme of Jesus' authority. It's been escalating in his teaching and over angels, over disease, over uncleanness, over people. And now he demonstrates without a shadow of a doubt that he has authority to forgive sins. And the healing of the person will back up his first proclamation. So Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins by healing the man who cannot walk. So he refers to himself then as the Son of Man. Some of you notice that and you're, you're wondering that. This is actually Jesus' favorite title for himself. 
Luke uses it 25 times. You know, it, it, it might be tempting to think that Son of Man speaks to Jesus' humanity, Son of God speaks to Jesus' deity, and we did argue earlier in Luke that, that Jesus is the Son of Adam. So in a sense, yes, he, he, his humanity is on display, but really this is a messianic title that comes from the book of Daniel, where the Son of Man is given dominion, and he's given authority, and he's given a, a kingdom that all people and nations will come underneath his rule and they will serve the Son of Man. His dominion, Daniel says, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom, Daniel says, will not be destroyed. So Jesus is claiming this status for himself. He's calling himself the Son of Man. And we'll have more opportunities. We just said Luke mentions it 25 times. We'll have more opportunities to kind of dive in and, and, and study why he would use this title. But here, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, gives the paralyzed man three commands. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then look how verse 23 corresponds to verse 22. What does he do? He rises, he picks up his bed, and he goes home. He does exactly as Jesus commanded. The man who could not walk is now not only walking, but he's picking up the very stretcher that he came in on and going home. And he leaves the text as glorifying God. This is, this is uh, essentially praising God all the way home. The man was paralyzed, completely helpless, completely dependent on the mercy of others. He woke up that way that morning. And that evening he walks home with his bed in hand. Jesus has demonstrated his willingness to heal and to forgive. That's the greater miracle. His sins have been forgiven, and so it produces this praise. He's going home glorifying, praising the Lord. And it is true that God's salvation results in joyous praise to God for the good work that he has accomplished in our hearts. He has done the impossible. He has done what we could never accomplish for ourselves in purchasing our forgiveness, in reconciling us with the holy God, in uniting us together with Christ so that we are, we are given the benefits that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified. We are righteous before him. And as Jeff prayed earlier, I hope we don't lose the awe of that. I hope we don't lose the joy of that especially as we walk through Luke, and every week it's Jesus on display, Jesus on display. May we not lose the amazement of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. In fact, the crowd reacts in verse 26. They react with praise and with glorifying God. They recognize that God's power has been displayed in their presence. The miracle of healing has demonstrated that Jesus' words are not just empty phrases, that he does indeed have the authority and the power to forgive sins. When he pronounced it, it happened. He was forgiven. And so the crowd, again, I think, if you read other gospel accounts, they don't really fully grasp who Jesus is at this point. But they're praising God, and they're filled with awe. That is, that is fear. They're filled with the fear of the Lord, they know that this is beyond the ordinary. We have seen extraordinary things, they say. What they've witnessed testifies to God's power 
into God's presence right there in their midst. And so they are rightfully fearful. They're trembling before the Lord. This miracle forces the audience then, whether it's the Pharisees or or the crowd, it forces the audience to wrestle with, what does this mean about Jesus? What does this mean about Christ? The religious leaders rightly state that only God can forgive sin, but they're unwilling They're unwilling to look at the evidence. Their eyes are blinded from seeing the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. And they become increasingly and increasingly, as the gospels develop, more and more uh, unwilling to admit that Jesus Christ is Lord. So for most of us here this morning, I I don't have to convince you that Jesus is God. I don't have to convince you that Jesus can heal or that he can forgive sin or that he can or that he even delights in forgiving sin. Perhaps the biggest struggle for most of us, many of us in this room, is, is to once again be reminded of the truths that we profess. To once again hear the glorious truths of the gospel. Because man, we tend we have spiritual amnesia. We tend to forget. We tend to assume. That Jesus is like us. In Acts 2, a couple weeks ago, our group got on a discussion about why that book we gave away several months ago, Gentle and Lowly, is such a huge success right now. Gentle and Lowly, if you haven't read it, it's, it's a meditation on the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. So we, we, we ask this question, why do we need to be constantly reminded? Why does it seem like such news to us that Jesus is gentle and that he's lowly with sinners and sufferers? And someone answered, because we tend to assume that God is just like us. We tend to assume that God is just like us. And so we need to be reminded this morning that God is not fickle like us. We need to be reminded that when he says, I will be clean, that you are clean. When he says, friend, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. He never tires of us coming to him again and again before the throne of grace in our time of need. But we tend to think Jesus is just like us. I have a friend who's daughter is probably Harrison's age, but she recently looked at her mom and said, Mom, you're the best mom ever, but that could change. (laughs) And I thought, how amazing that a little kid wanted to praise her mom as the best mom in the world, but was immediately struck by the fact that she better rein that in a little bit. Or mom might take advantage of this kindness that has been given to her. She might think this status is permanent and therefore mom will no longer strive to be the best mom in the world. So I better threaten her just a little bit. That's our problem, isn't it? We think God is just like us. We think that he would pronounce over us that you're clean, you're forgiven, I love you, I've forgiven your sin. And we expect God to say, but that could change. But that could change. Again, I love the way Dane Ortland says it. Have you considered what is true of you if you are in Christ? In order for you to fall short of the loving embrace of Christ, 
both now and in eternity, Christ himself would have to be pulled out of heaven and returned to the grave. For God to say that could change, Jesus has to come off the throne and back into the tomb. If you've come to Christ through saving faith, through his death on the cross, you are clean, you are forgiven, you are secure in Christ because he's not only capable, but he is willing. Let's pray together. Lord, we are aware that it's because of our our own sinful hearts that we are tempted to believe that you would change our status before you. But Lord, that's a false humility because it, it really attacks your character. And so Father, may we rest in you. May we trust in your pronouncement, your work, your salvation. If it's about us, our status would change. But Lord, we pray that we would rest in your work and that it would actually motivate us then to, to live life unto your glory, to put away sin, to actually cherish your love and your justice and your commandments and your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.